Chapter 3, Part 2 of The Last Secrets by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3, The North Pole, Part 2. During the years succeeding Nansen's expedition, the desire to reach the North Pole itself took possession of the minds of many brave men. Bit by bit, the Arctic regions had been mapped out. Gradually, the obstacles that maintained the pole and its splendid isolation were being overcome. Some years were to pass before its mysteries were unveiled, but in those years, there was an almost continuous effort to probe those mysteries. Nansen had discovered beyond any doubt that the pole lay in an ice-covered sea, an inhospitable place enough, but this fact did not prevent explorers from wanting to actually locate it, and in 1900 the Duke of the Abruzzi tried to reach it by way of Franz Joseph Land. Owing to a frostbitten hand, the Duke could not take part in the main journey of his expedition, and so Captain Cagney commanded it. The Pole withstood this effort, but Cagney did succeed in reaching 86 degrees 33 minutes north, and thus beat Nansen's record for farthest north. Previous to the Abruzzi expedition, Robert Peary had launched his first great attack upon the Pole. This expedition lasted for four years, 1898 to 1902, but Peary encountered such dense packs of ice which blocked his way to the polar ocean that he failed in his main object. Another attempt followed in 1906, and although this was not crowned with complete success, Perry made a world's record for farthest north by reaching 87 degrees 6 minutes. In this expedition he nearly lost his life, but he returned to America with a grim determination to make yet another attempt. Experience had been bought by Perry in abundance and at a great cost and to this was added an energy that was remarkable even among polar explorers. This third voyage to the polar regions had, in the nature of things, to be his last. He was, when he set out upon it, fifty-three years of age, and although, after spending over twenty years in Arctic work, he had an experience that was invaluable, even experience cannot make an Arctic explorer forget that youth is also a great asset in the polar regions. In May 1908, Peary published his program, the main features of which are worthy of record. He decided to use the same ship, the Roosevelt, which had taken him to the north in his 1906 expedition. His route was to be by way of Smith Sound. His winter quarters were to be at Cape Sheridan, or even nearer to the pole if the ship could proceed farther. He intended to use sledges and Eskimo dogs for traction. And, lastly, he placed his confidence in Eskimos, the Arctic Highlanders, as the rank and file of his sledge parties. Most careful preparations were made for this expedition, and while Peary was making them, he received much practical support, but also some suggestions that were not notably helpful. For instance, one cheerful crank invited him to become a human cannonball, some sort of machine was to be taken to the north, and then, when it was pointed towards the pole, the inventor assured Peary that it would shoot him there in no time. 
the explorer did not see his way to accepting such an abrupt means of transit. When the Roosevelt sailed on 17th July 1908, she had 22 men on board, including Peary himself, Robert Bartlett, master of the Roosevelt, George Wardwell, Dr. Goodsell, Professor Marvin, Donald McMillan, George Borup, and Matthew Henson, Perry's Negro assistant, who had accompanied him on many expeditions. When Perry's vast knowledge of the polar regions is remembered, his remarks on the essentials required in an Arctic sledge journey must admittedly be valuable. The essentials, and only the essentials, he writes, needed in a serious Arctic sled journey, no matter what the season, the temperature, or the duration of the journey, whether one month or six, are four. Pemmican, tea, ship's biscuit, condensed milk. And it is interesting to note that of these commodities, he took 50,000 pounds of pemmican, 10,000 pounds of biscuit, 800 pounds of tea, and 100 cases of condensed milk on this expedition. The Roosevelt reached Cape York, Greenland, on the 1st of August, and there she said a temporary goodbye to the civilized world. There also Perry met with Eskimos, whose friendship he had gained by many and continuous acts of kindness. The Eskimos are, within their limits, a lovable and loyal people. Their good qualities are those of nice children, their bad qualities those of mischievous children. I have made it a point, Perry says, to be firm with them, but to rule them by love and gratitude rather than by fear and threats. An Eskimo, like an Indian, never forgets a broken promise, nor a fulfilled one. These Eskimos live on the verge of starvation for many months in the year, but if they are not troubled by questions of morality in one sense of the word, they are at any rate ready to share what they have got in the way of food, or of means to obtain it, with those who are less fortunate than themselves. Religion, as we understand it, does not enter into their scheme of things, but they pay studious attention to spirits, especially to Tornarsuk, who is the devil himself, and consequently leader of all evil spirits. One can appreciate the childlikeness of people who will rip an old garment to shreds so that the devil may be prevented from wearing it. After leaving Cape York, Perry transferred himself for some days to the Eric, his auxiliary supply steamer, so that he could collect as many Eskimos and dogs as he required. By the 11th of August, the Eric reached Etah and joined the Roosevelt. Finally, Perry selected 49 Eskimos and 246 dogs, and having transferred them to the Roosevelt, the explorers set out to fight their way through 350 miles of ice-blocked water that separated Etah from Cape Sheridan. And the ice during that journey was in no gentle mood. So great were the risks that the ship might at any time be crushed that the boats fully equipped and provisioned were always ready to be lowered at a moment's notice. A terrific battle with that uncompromising opponent, the ice, followed, but not until 30th August did the struggle reach its climax. On that day, the ship was kicked about by flows as if she had been a football, and the pressure was so terrific that Perry decided to dynamite the ice. This operation was successful in relieving the situation, 
but some days passed before even the greatest optimist in the ship could consider her free from danger but on the fifth of september the roosevelt managed to fight her way through to cape sheridan and after a project to take her on to porter bay had been abandoned the work of unloading her was begun and with her lighter load captain bartlett proceeded to get her as near the shore as possible the first stage on the way to the pole was behind the explorers and if the next stage was shorter in distance it was no less important a part of the whole scheme this second stage consisted of the transportation of supplies from cape sheridan to cape columbia ninety miles northwest of the ship cape columbia is the most northerly point of grand land and from there peary had determined to make his dash over the ice to the pole but to move an enormous quantity of supplies over such a distance was work that needed much thought and care for in the first place some of perry's companions were unused to driving sledges and secondly neither the weather nor the track were likely to give them much assistance these sledging parties on the way to cape columbia were soon organized and in addition hunting parties were sent out and a supply of fresh meat for the winter was obtained imagine us perry wrote in our winter home on the roosevelt the ship held tight in her icy berth a hundred and fifty yards from the shore the ship and the surrounding world covered with snow the wind creaking in the rigging whistling and shrieking round the corners of the deck-houses the temperatures ranging from zero to sixty below and the ice back in the channel outside groaning and complaining with the movement of the tides in these words peary gives us an excellent picture of the explorer's winter home a home upon which the sun never shone for many months but which in spite of the darkness was a home of unceasing industry and preparation and among the innumerable activities that took place none was more important than the task of attending to the dogs early in november peary had become anxious about these all-important factors of his expedition over fifty of them were dead already and a few days later only one hundred sixty dogs out of the two forty-five with which he had arrived were left a change of diet from whale to walrus meat put an end to these appalling losses but peary's anxiety until he discovered a way to prevent them can be easily imagined for without any adequate supply of dogs he knew all too well that neither he nor anyone else would ever reach the pole by the end of the autumn season snow igloos had been built on the track to cape columbia we have the best authority namely perry's for saying that one of these snow houses can be built by four good workmen in an hour into this shelter the traveller literally crawls for the only means of interest is a hole at the bottom of one side and when the last man of the party has got in this opening is closed up by a block of snow already cut for the purpose except for one most alarming experience when in a terrific gale the ice made a stupendous effort against the invading ship the winter was spent rather with anxiety about the future than with worry about the present no wonder that peary speculated over what awaited him when he started on his great march after leaving cape columbia over four hundred miles separated him from his goal and these miles had to be traveled over the ice of the polar sea there is no land he writes between cape columbia and the north pole 
and no smooth and very little level ice. But even ice through which the traveler must sometimes pickaxe his way is not the most serious impediment to those who would reach the pole. The great obstacle, the ever-present source of anxiety, are the leads which constantly appear. These leads are really patches of open water, varying in extent, which the winds and tides cause in the ice movement. For no reason that is apparent, these dangerous obstacles suddenly block the explorer's advance, and little can be done save to wait for them to remove themselves. These leads were to be Perry's greatest impediment in his march, and were destined to be fatal to one valued member of his party. The final attack on the pole began on 15th of February, 1909, when Bartlett, with a pioneer party, left the Roosevelt, and a week later, Peary started on his way. At this time, seven members of the expedition, 19 Eskimos, 140 dogs, and 28 sledges, divided into various parties, were engaged in the great effort to reach the pole. It was arranged that all these parties should meet Perry at Cape Columbia on the last day of February. And on that day, Bartlett and Borup started from the Cape with advance parties. The duties of these advance parties were as onerous as they were important, for it was to Bartlett that Perry looked for a trail by which the main party could travel. On the second day's march, after Perry had left Cape Columbia and the land behind him, he met with his first open lead and a slight delay occurred. But on the following day, his lead was covered with young ice and Perry determined to cross it. If the reader, he wrote, will imagine crossing a river on a succession of gigantic shingles, one, two, or three deep, and all afloat and moving, he will perhaps form an idea of the uncertain surface over which we cross this lead. Such a passage is distinctly trying, as any moment may lose a sledge in its team, or plunge a member of the party into the icy water. And later on, when Borup was crossing an open crack, his dogs fell into the water, and the loss both of dogs and the sledge, with its invaluable load of provisions, was only prevented by Borup's exceptional quickness and strength. The explorers had advanced nearly 50 miles from Cape Columbia when they were held up by a big lead, which refused most obstinately to cover itself with ice strong enough to bear the sledges. For a week, this open water delayed the expedition, and Peary had good reason to wonder if his most careful preparation and organization were once more to miss the success that they deserved. On the 11th of March, however, the parties managed to cross the lead, and on the march that followed, they crossed the 84th parallel. When the explorers started on this journey, Peary did not announce how far each one of his companions was to accompany him on the march, and presently Dr. Goodsell and Macmillan, with Eskimos, sledges, and dogs, turned back. Then the main expedition consisted of 16 men, 12 sledges, and 100 dogs. On March 19th, Perry revealed the program he intended to follow to Bartlett, Marvin, Borup, and Henson. First of all, Borup was to turn back. Five marches farther on, Marvin was to go. And after another five marches, Bartlett was to leave the polar party, which would then consist of six men, 40 dogs, and five sledges. 
Unlike most programs, this one of Peary's was faithfully carried out. Borup returned when 85 degrees 23 minutes was reached, and during the next days the explorers advanced so rapidly that they succeeded in passing both Nansen's and the Duke of the Abruzzi's record for farthest north. In turn, first Bartlett and then Marvin started upon the homeward track, and Peary was left with four Eskimos, Engawa, Siglu, Ota, and Okwea, Hansen, five sledges, and forty dogs. Of these Eskimos, Okwea was the only one who had not been in any previous expedition. But all the same, he was the most romantic of the party, because he was intent upon winning the rewards that would enable him to marry the girl of his choice. Glimmering before his eyes, Okwea saw a whaleboat, a rifle, and other prizes which Peary had promised to those who went with him to the farthest point. Not for a moment was there any doubt about Aquia's keenness, for he was spurred on by two of the greatest incentives that any young man can have, a desire to be wealthy and a desire to marry. Left alone with Henson and the Eskimos, Perry still had 133 nautical miles to travel before he reached his goal. This distance he intended to cover in five marches and provided that the gales would leave him in peace and not open the leads of water, he had every hope of carrying out his intention. Up to this stage in the march, Peary had been whipper-in, but in the last stages he led the van, and during the concluding stages it must be admitted that fortune smiled upon the travelers. True that in this almost breathless rush for the pole, leads were not entirely absent, but such as were encountered did not seriously delay the marches. As, however, Peary got nearer and nearer to the pole, the fear that the prize might at the last moment be snatched away from him by an impassable lead was constantly with him. On the 5th of April, the party reached 89 degrees 25 minutes north and were within 35 miles of the pole. So near indeed were they that Peary writes, by some strange shift of feeling, the fear of the leads had fallen from me completely. I now felt that success was certain. And his confidence was justified. On April 6, 1909, Peary, with his colored assistant, Matthew Henson, and the four Eskimos reached the pole. And there, the leader of this successful party wrote the following note. 90 degrees north latitude, north pole, 6th April, 1909. I have today hoisted the national ensign of the United States of America at this place, which my observations indicate to be the north pole axis of the earth, and have formally taken possession of the entire region and adjacent, for and in the name of the President of the United States of America. I leave this record and United States flag in possession. Robert E. Peary, United States Navy The explorers spent 30 hours at the pole and then started upon the long journey back to the coast of Grantland. By the 23rd of April, favored by beautiful weather, the party had reached Cape Columbia. So favored, indeed, had they been that Utah remarked on their arrival that the devil is asleep or having trouble with his wife, or we should never have come back so easily. On that same day, Peary wrote in his diary, 
I have got the North Pole out of my system after 23 years of effort, hard work, disappointments, hardships, privations, more or less suffering, and some risks. The joy of success, tremendous as it was, could not but be dimmed by the news that awaited Perry on his return to the ship. For Marvin had lost his life on the return journey in trying to cross some young and treacherous ice, and the loss of this gallant and able man illustrates all too sadly the some risks of which Perry wrote, risks which all explorers in greater or less measure have to run. As a conclusion to this chapter of adventure and determined effort, the words of that prince of explorers, Fritjof Nansen, seem peculiarly appropriate. From first to last, he wrote, the history of polar exploration is a single mighty manifestation of the power of the unknown over the mind of man. End of chapter 3